my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we are new in you, we are forgiven in you. That our yesterdays are exactly that. They are past, they are gone. They are history. We are new in you, we're forgiven in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, that you looked at our sin, you looked at our helplessness and our hopelessness, and you fought for us, and you laid your life down for us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you continue to fight for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're not going to leave us here in this battle-scarred place, but Jesus, you will come again. And we will be with you, and we'll be with you forever. You'll wipe every tear away. Death and sorrow will be something we won't even understand anymore. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As we open your word now, we ask that you meet with us. Give us understanding. And that, God, you would be exalted. That you'd be lifted up by the attitudes of our hearts. That you'd be lifted up as we read your word and as we, as we chew on your word, as we digest your word. God, may you be lifted up. May it honor you. So meet with us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, hello, good to see you. Uh, we have been doing a series on family called Family God's Way. That's where we've been the past four weeks, and we concluded that last week. And uh, so we're going to be starting something new this week, and I'm really excited about what we're starting. Uh, we're starting a series called Faith, Love, Hope, and we're going to be walking through together the book of First Thessalonians, all right? Now, I'm really excited about this for multiple reasons. I'm really excited uh, because this is a worthy thing to do. I'm really excited because the truth of God that's found in First Thessalonians is an amazing truth, and it's, it's extremely encouraging, uh, but I'm also excited because I've never preached through a book of the Bible. I'm excited to see what God's going to do, what he's going to pull out uh, of First of Thessalonians for us, and, and I want to say this, and I'll probably say this every week, we're going to take big bites of this book, all right? We're going to take First Thessalonians in big bites. Sometimes we're going to take smaller bites, but, but as a whole, we're going, to be, we're going to be taking big old chunks out of this book, and so I want, you to, I want you to do something for me. Would you please go back and dissect it? Would you please go back and, and really digest it and really, really look and see the gold that you'll find there in First Thessalonians? And so you might say, why start with First Thessalonians? Well, I'll 
tell you this, as I was thinking about working through a book of the Bible, uh, I wanted to work through a letter of Paul, and this is his first one, as far as we know. This is his first letter, and so I thought this would probably be a good place to start. And, and so as I was reading through First Thessalonians, uh, I was amazed at the encouragement I found. I was amazed at the challenge. I was amazed at the hope that it left me with, and so I hope that we will all find that together. But before we move on, before we can just start talking about this letter, we need a little bit of history, a little bit of background, all right? So we need to understand what Thessalonica is like, all right? So uh, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, which is more than just a fun name to say. It is, uh, it is the, where he's writing uh, to. Thessalonica was on something called the Ignatian Way, which was a really famous uh, uh, road that passed completely through Macedonia. Um, and so this was the road that Rome used to communicate to their eastern provinces. And one of the main cities on that road, almost smack dab in the middle of this passage, uh, was Thessalonica. Um, and so this was an incredibly important place. It was called the key to the whole of Macedonia. Uh, some even called it the mother of all Macedon. Um, and it was a modern city. It had about 200,000 inhabitants in the day of Paul. Um, and it was unique in that it had no Roman magistrates. So what it was called, is called a free city. They had their own authority. They had their own senate. Um, and they had their own uh, uh, public meetings. Um, and so here's the deal. As long as they were peaceful, Rome let them be a free city, right? Rome cared about the Pax Romana. They cared about the peace of Rome. And as long as these people could govern themselves in peace, Rome said, fine, govern yourselves in peace. They said, we're going to keep our hands out of your business. You just be peaceful. That's all we want from you, all right? And so this is incredibly important. You say, why do I care that they want to keep the peace? Because this is really important to Paul's journey there. Paul and Silas, they journeyed there, and we read about that first in Acts chapter 17. And this is incredibly important because once we read in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see this in chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers. So they were torn away. They were pulled out of the city before they wanted to leave. And the reason why is because, uh, because of something related to the Pax Romana, something related to disturbing the peace, all right? We're going to find this first in Acts chapter 17. As we read Acts chapter 17, we find out that, that Paul and Silas spent somewhere probably between 15 and 27 days there. Uh, he says that he preached three Sabbaths, so we can do the math there and figure out that he was probably with them 15 to 27 days. Um, um, and Paul and Silas, as they arrived, the first thing they did as their custom arriving anywhere was they went to the synagogue, all right? And they went to the people where they were, where they were worshiping, and brought the good news of Jesus and taught there. Now, this is an incredible lesson to us as believers, that when they entered this world, instead of setting up shop, building a, a church and saying, come see, come see, they went where people were and they told the good news. And this is something we should probably adopt in our own lives. Now, do I think that you should invite people to church? Yes. And I hope that you do. All right. Absolutely hope that you do. However, understand this, that sometimes uh, uh, for some people walking in this place would be just as uncomfortable for you if, if you were to walk into, you know, let's say some nightclub somewhere. All right. So just 
just as uncomfortable as, as that might make you, this room might make them feel that way. And so we need to be adaptable. We need to become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. We need to go where they are and bring the good news there. It's what Jesus did. It's what Paul did. It's what we should do as well. Now, he started to preach and it said that many people were converted, some devout Jews, some devout Greeks, and it says even uh, some of the most powerful women there, right? So as all these people were converted, and this was a great thing. The church in Thessalonica is about to kick off, and it's going to be a great, great deal. But it says in Acts 17 that the devout Jews there, some of them became very jealous uh, that they were converting people away, and so they got a mob together, and they went to the house uh, where they were where they were staying and looked for them, uh, and they weren't there. The guy they were staying with was named Jason, uh, and I know you think that's in the Bible. It is. I know it's weird, but anyway, so they went to the house of the guy, Jason, who, who was hosting them, uh, and they grabbed Jason. They said, well, we're Paul and Silas. I don't know. Well, you'll do. So they grabbed Jason, right? And so they go to their senate. They go to their public assembly, and they say, these guys are disturbing the peace. They're preaching that there's another king besides Caesar. They're preaching about this guy, Jesus, and they say that he's king and that everything falls under his dominion, right? And so, so we, need to, we need to nip this in the bud. And so, of course, what do they say? They say, let's get these guys. We've got to get these guys because if they disturb our peace, then Rome's going to come in and this sweet little do-whatever-you-want-ville that we live in, it's going to get really messed up, all right? Rome's going to come in. They're going to tax the heck out of us, and they're going to start telling us what to do. It's not a good thing, so we need to get these guys. So they arrest, uh, they arrest Jason. They don't know where Paul and Silas are, so they arrest Jason. It says that Jason basically pays bail. He bails himself out, um, and probably he also agrees that he would get Paul and Silas out of there, and that's exactly what he does. So he goes and he finds them and he sends them away immediately, all right? And so, of course, Paul, it says there in 1 Thessalonians 2 that we were torn away from you. So the work that Paul had started was not complete. And probably where he was and the way that he taught, he taught very exhaustively on salvation and on the, and, and on the deity of Christ. But after that, he moved into the hope of Jesus' return. And so probably where he was was right in the middle of teaching that. And he was pulled away. And so before he could complete his teaching on the coming of Jesus. Uh, he was pulled away, and so he immediately wants to go back to them, so he sends Timothy. He sends Timothy in, and we know that because at the beginning of this letter, 1 Thessalonians, he says, it's me, Paul, and Silas. Uh, he goes by a different name there. We'll talk about that in a second. And then he says, and Timothy. So Timothy goes to him, uh, goes to them, uh, continues teaching, uh, and then brings a report back to Paul, right? And there's a lot of questions they have uh, about about believers who have died, what's happened to them, and also about resurrection and about Jesus coming back because Paul did not complete his teaching there because he was torn away from them. So this letter is a response to Timothy's report. Timothy came back and he said, you won't believe how good they're doing. You won't believe how great this church is. You won't believe how much their lives have changed. It's incredible. However, they've got some questions. They don't really understand what happens uh, to believers when they die. They don't really understand the resurrection. They don't really understand Jesus coming back completely. So can you, can you, can you write to them? Can you give them those answers? And so that's what Paul is writing here in 1 Thessalonians. There are three major themes of 1 Thessalonians. The first one is Paul's love 
uh, for the church. Paul's love, and he, and he praises the church. He praises the work that they're doing. He praises their, their progress, right? The second theme is instructions for holy living. Again, he is the, he's basically the father, if you will, to this church, and he's saying, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to conduct yourselves. And then, of course, the last thing, uh, the last theme, one of the, the biggest themes of this whole book is the hope of the Lord's return, of the Lord Jesus coming back. And we're going to look at all of these as we explore First Thessalonians. And I'm telling you, it's an exciting book. It's an exciting opportunity for us. And I thank the Lord for giving it to us. So we're going to start in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. And the, the, the title of the message that I'm calling it today is evidence of election, and this is part one, all right? We're going we're gonna to finish this chapter next week. This is called evidence of election. Now, doubt is something we all wrestle with. As soon as I said the word doubt, did anyone get like that, that feeling in their stomach, right? Just like, just that sinking feeling, or, or maybe, maybe you get that, that quick uh, cold sweat type thing. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like maybe that word doubt really, really messes with you. And we all wrestle with doubt. And I heard a story this week that I thought was really funny about doubt, because doubt can be a funny thing. It can be useful if you are so inclined to use it against somebody. And, and so I read this story. It was um, Lord Halifax is a former foreign secretary of Great Britain. And once he shared a railway compartment with two prim-looking spinsters, all right? And a few moments before reaching his destination, the train passed through a tunnel. And so in utter darkness, Halifax began to kiss the back of his hand very noisily several times. And when the train drew into the station, he rose, lifted his hat, and said in a very gentlemanly way, May I thank whichever one of you two ladies I am indebted to for the charming incident in the tunnel. And then he left and left them in doubt as to who was the guilty party. I love that story. And you better believe if I ever get in a train, I'm doing that. All right. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, doubt can be a funny thing. It can be something we, we use against people uh, or doubt probably more often, is a beastly thing. That's exactly how King David described it. In Psalm chapter 80, King David is writing about this seed of faith that God put in him. And here's what he says. He says, the beasts of doubt have fed on it. Have you felt that before? Have you felt that? That what God is doing in your life, maybe, maybe the evidence of your election even so, maybe, maybe the faith that God's growing in you, have you felt the beasts of doubt feeding upon them? With verses like Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We all are subjected to doubt from time to time. And we all maybe even doubt, am I chosen of God? Am I one of his elect? Am I a follower of Jesus? Am, am, am I his child? And so what should our response be? What's a biblical response in the middle of all of this? I think it comes from 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And listen, this is what we're doing today. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed uh, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. How do we examine ourselves? How do we know if we're a true follower of Jesus? What evidence of election are we looking for? Jesus spoke very plainly in Luke chapter 6. He was speaking uh, about fruit. He said this. 
He said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So what is Jesus saying? For each tree is known by its own fruit. The evidence of election is the fruit of your life. What does your life look like? What does your life look like? What is your life producing? And you might say, Grant, what's the use of preaching on this? Like, what, what are you hoping to accomplish with this? I'm hoping to accomplish two things. One, for Christians out there, I'm hoping to, to challenge you. I'm hoping for, for you to see the evidence of your election, to see how God has been working in you. I hope to challenge you to, to lean into that process more. And I hope also to encourage you and give you confidence. I guess I could have called this confidence of the chosen as well. And so I want you to, to feel confident um, in who you are in Christ. And for the rest of you, I, for some of you, I want you to realize that you failed a test. For some of you, my prayer this morning is that you realize that you have failed. And here's why. The consequences of of being self-deceived, the consequences of being deceived into believing that you are a true follower of Christ when you are not, the consequences are grave. The consequences are the gravest. The consequences are eternal separation from God. These are consequences I'm not willing to, to mess with. These are consequences I'm not willing to gamble with, and neither should you. So my prayer this morning is that for some of you, you will realize you failed. And for some of you, today is the day that you come to Jesus. And my prayer is for some of you that it's not too late. Um, so let's read First Thessalonians. So turn to First Thessalonians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you definitely need one today. Um, so if you didn't bring one, there should be some Bibles underneath your seat. They're little white Bibles. You can follow along there. Um, if you don't know where First Thessalonians is, that's why there's a table of contents in the front. Check it out. Um, and if you have a smartphone or whatever, you can look up Version uh, or just search Bible in the App Store, and you can find it there and follow along. All right? First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul... Uh, Silvanus, or also, that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. So what does this have to do with evidence of election? Look at verse 4. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know. We know. And so he then goes on to list evidences. Uh, in, in the prior to that, in verse 2 and 3, we see evidences, right? And I believe that all of this chapter is built on verses 2 and 3. Um, and so, Let's start there in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, uh, uh, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 should be a challenge to us, believers. It should be a challenge to us in, in two ways. One, look at his focus. 
Even in their success or his success, right? He went and he preached the gospel and, and they, came to a, uh, uh, they came to know Jesus. They turned from their sin, came to know Jesus. And now uh, they are a thriving group of people. He could, he could easily say this is his success. He could easily uh, give himself credit. But instead, what? Who gets the credit? God. Credit goes where it belongs, right? He's not saying, hey, listen, I, thank you so much for turning around. Thank you so much. No, no, no. He says, God has done an amazing work, hasn't he? And so the credit goes to God in all success. And the second thing we should be challenged with is this. Are you ardent in your prayerful support of our church and our ministry? He says that he's constantly praying for them. Are you ardent in your prayerful support for our church and our ministry? Ian Bounds said, talking to men for God is a great thing. But talking to God for men is greater still. Are you ardent? Are you fervent in your prayerful support of our church and what God's doing here? This should be a challenge to us. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 is the linchpin for this chapter. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you make two columns? If you're taking notes or if you're not taking notes, grab a sheet of paper or, or rip up your bulletin or whatever you want to do and, and make two columns for me, all right? On the left column right there, faith, love, hope. On the right column, right, work, labor, steadfastness, or you can write endurance, all right? Same thing, all right? So faith, love, hope, work, labor, steadfastness. Now the main idea of the rest of this chapter is found in these six words. The main idea about the evidence of election, the confidence of the chosen, are found in these six words right here. And these words can either they can either give us confidence and cause us to rejoice or they can become a burden. They can become something that we try to conjure up within ourselves, which is impossible to do without the Holy Spirit. And, and they will become a burden and instead of giving us life, will continually take life from us. So how do we make these words, how do we make sure these words are an encouragement to us? It starts at the end of verse 3. In our Lord Jesus Christ. These six words are not things that happen naturally within a person. He's not describing characteristics of just this is how people are. You need to find, look deep down in yourself and find these six things. Instead, these are the result of God working in someone because they're found in our Lord Jesus Christ. It starts there. This is not like you can be a better person if you try to work harder in faith or, or labor in love better or have steadfast and hope. No, no, no. These aren't characteristics of people. These are realities and these are effects of, of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. It starts there. So let's label these columns, all right? Let's figure this, this out. Um, label the left column cause and label the right column effect, all right? Label the left column cause, label the right co column effect, and then right above all of it, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain. Cause, everything in that left column, this is the work of God on our lives. These are three things that God does for us, to us, on us, all right? So this is cause and effect is the work of God in our lives. So because of faith, 
we have work. Because of love, we labor. Because of hope, we endure, all right? So effect is the work of God in our lives. It's, it's what's happened to our lives because of the work of God on our lives. Cause, effect, ultimately all what? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's break this down. Let's figure this out. The first evidence of election, number one, your work of faith. So left column, faith. Let's start there, faith. Faith is how we come to know God, but faith absolutely is a work of God on us. It is a gift of God. Now, some disagree with me on this, and that's okay. Uh, If you have no problem living um, with being in error, that's fine. Just live with being in error, but uh, faith is a gift from God. Let me give you some examples. John 6, 65, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can believe in me. No one can, can put their faith in me unless it's granted him by the Father, unless it's gifted to him. In the same passage, Jesus declares later in John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So faith is not a product of the unregenerate mind. Faith is not uh, uh, the product of, of depravity. Faith is the product of goodness. No one is good. Only God is good. Therefore, it is an attribute of God. Therefore, it is a gift of God that he gives to us. So it's a gift of grace and of God. It's not something we conjure. It's a gift of grace and of God. Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, all right? So faith absolutely is a gift. It's because God has gifted you faith. Now you've come to Jesus, and what's the effect of faith? Left column to right column works. Look on the right column, works. James two seventeen. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let me read you a quote by William Booth. He uses this word picture. He says, faith and work should travel side by side, step answering to step, like the legs of men walking. First faith, then works. Then faith again, then works. Then faith, then works. Until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. They should walk so closely hand in hand that you can't determine which is the other. Your faith resulting in, in, in work is evidence um, of God working in you. Philippians 2.13 says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. You cannot do the work of God. You cannot do the work of God without the faith that God has given you working in you. So genuine faith should result in different works. It should result in godly works. It should result in your life looking radically different. Uh, you should have different responses. Different responses, uh, an example to trials. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So your response in trials should be different because of your faith. So your actions, your response should be different. Oswald Chambers said, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. So your response is different. The work that you do in trials is different because of your faith. When you face persecution, the work that you do in response to persecution is different. Matthew five forty four. I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So when you love your enemies, when you do the work of praying for those who persecute you, that is a good work, that is a godly work and that's a work that only can come from what faith 
Faith working through you, all right? Uh, you should have different decisions, different decisions with how you use your resources. Uh, because of faith, you understand and believe that God has provided everything I have. It's God's. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. We also understand that God will provide. I can be generous because my faith in me tells me and has me trust that, that I can trust God to provide for me. I can't outgive my my God, all right? And so Matthew 6, 8, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so a faith, a faith work there is to be generous, to not be, to not be selfish, to not hoard what God has given you, but recognize that it's from God and it's used for God. C.S. Lewis said this about being generous. I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. That is a good work. That is a God work. That is a work that is only a result of true faith working through you. So choosing godly things over sin, choosing the good over sin, this is a work that is being worked out in you because of faith. This is evidence of election. You might say, how do I know if this decision I'm making is sin? This is a great question to ask, and, and probably this is one of the wisest things I've ever heard. It was by Susanna Wesley. This is how she defines sin to her young son, John Wesley, who you might have heard of, and she said this, if you would judge of the lawfulness or the unlawfulness of pleasure, then take this simple rule right here. Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes off the relish of spiritual things. That to you is sin. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that one of the most amazing things you've ever heard? Let me say it again. Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes off the relish of spiritual things. That to you is sin. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing definition of sin. What a godly woman. What a, what a blessing of God to give her that wisdom to give to us. Um, let me say a side note real quick. I want to stress this. You might say, well, Grant, I'm not always choosing good. So does that mean I'm not a child of God? Absolutely not. I'm not saying that just because you don't live the perfect life doesn't mean that you aren't a child of God. But here's what I am saying. If you aren't driven by these things, if you're defined by worldly things and not by these godly things we're talking about, if that's what drives you, if that's what defines you, then yes, you have a problem. Then yes, you fail the test. All right? Let's keep going. Look at the second thing. Labor of love. Left column love, all right? Just as faith is a gift of God, so is his love. It's not something we deserve, 1 John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So he loves us. That's an absolute gift of God. While we were still sinners, while we spat in his face, while we wanted to have nothing to do with him, he loved us and he moved for us. He worked on our our behalf. What a gift. This is not something we earned. It's not something we deserve. It's a gift. It's an absolute gift of God. And because of his love for us, left column, we go to the right column. We labor. 
We labor for love, all right? Now, we labor constantly, all right? You work constantly. How do you live your life? What do you live your life for? How do you spend your time? What are you doing? And we now can labor for love. Now, listen, we have a love problem. We were born with a love problem problem, all right? Uh, now, I'm not saying that you were born and, pe- and you were unloved. Everybody loves babies, all right? But I want to say this real quick. Can I say this? Maybe I shouldn't. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you know how people say, like, they've never seen an ugly baby? <laughs> Come on. All right, anyway, all right. I don't know where that came from, <laughs> but there's some ugly babies. Not mine. All right, but anyway, we have a love problem. Jesus said that there are two things that he wants from us. There are two main things that he cares about. He wants us to love God, and he wants us to love people, right? But what do, who do we love naturally, right? What's our love problem? We love us. Look at kids. Look at toddlers, all right? My son is a toddler right now. Everything is his. This is his world, and we're living in it, all right? And so, like, think about that. That's, that's our natural inclinations. I read an article, and it was a satire, and it was said, how to be miserable, and it listed these things. Listen to this. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous. Be envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful to you for favors shown them. Never forget a service you've rendered. Shirk your duties if you can and do as little as possible for others. Now, this is extreme. It absolutely is extreme. But is it not true? Are these not things that, that we, we daily fight in ourselves? Like, raise your hand if you know somebody on a daily basis that you see this lived out. Maybe not all of them, but, but you've seen this in people. I hope you've seen this in people. Otherwise, like, you say you don't talk to people. Otherwise, like, you are a hermit, all right? We see this in people all the time. Do you not raise your hand because it's your spouse? We'll talk later. All right, but anyway... But because of the love of Jesus for us, we can labor out of love for God and for others. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Do you labor out of love for God and people? Are your actions marked by love? Are your actions marked by love for God and are they marked by love for other people or are they marked by something else? And you might say, but I don't feel love for everybody, right? I don't always feel love for everybody. I don't care. That's not the question I asked. Are your actions marked by love? C.S. Lewis talked about this in Mere Christianity. He said, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find out one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you'll presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you'll find yourself disliking him less. Do you labor for love? For love of God and for love of others. This is the second evidence of election. The third, steadfastness of hope. All right, left column hope. All right, I just realized this is opposite for you. Left column of hope, all right? Uh, hope is also a gift, all right? Because of what Jesus has done for us, we have hope. We have no hope without him. We have hope because of what he's done for us. We have hope in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. For as by a man came death, but a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We have the hope 
of resurrection, of being made new in him. We have the hope of being complete in him. Philippians 1, 6 says, he, that's God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'll be new and I will be complete in him. So because of the gift of hope that Christ has given us, let's go to the right column, steadfastness or endurance. We have endurance when faced with loss. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. That sounds familiar. Maybe we'll get to it in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, let me read you this quote uh, about Christians dying, and I, I find this, uh, this so helpful and, and so um, poignant. Death is not extinguishing the light from the Christian. It is putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. You hear that? Death is not extinguishing the light from the Christian. It's putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We have endurance when faced with the loss of a brother or sister because their light hasn't been extinguished. Their dawn has come. They are basking in the light of Christ. So we have endurance when faced with loss. We have steadfastness when faced with physical difficulties. C.S. Lewis reminds us that you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Benjamin Franklin, in one of his lighter moments, penned his own epitaph, and he didn't profess to be a born-again Christian, but it seems he must have been influenced by some of Paul's teachings when he wrote this. This is what he wrote. The body of B. Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out, and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost. For it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. An amazing picture, corrected and amended by the author. Whatever struggles you face with physically, they aren't forever. They can't be forever. God will completely redeem us, all right? Do you have trouble walking? You will run to Jesus. Do you have trouble hearing? You will hear the voice of God clearer than anything you've ever heard before. Is your vision fading? Long for the day that the next thing that you see clearly will be his face. We endure through physical difficulties because of the hope we have in God. We have endurance when faced with spiritual difficulties. 2 Corinthians 4.16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this is not a painless process as God starts to knock off the rough corners and the rough edges that we have of sinfulness and the, and the rebellion that's in ourselves. This is not a painless process. Jesus says, take up your cross. You want to follow me? You want to be like me? Every day you take up your cross. And this is not painless. This is a tough situation because he's saying that dirty laundry that you buried, let's pull that out and deal with that. These walls that you've built up to make yourself comfortable, let's tear those down, all right? These prejudices you've held onto, the people that you've kept at arm's length for your own comfort, let's bring them close. Let's tear those prejudices away, all right? This is not a painless process. However, we have hope enduring this because it's so 
serves ultimately a loving purpose. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You will be completed. The work he's putting you through, it's not for nothing, all right? He's growing you. He's shaping you. He's forming you. He's molding you, and he will perfect you in the end. But not yet. Not yet. It's when we see Jesus. St. Augustine said this about that. He said, uh, God, make me good, but not yet. But not yet. The only time we will truly be good is when he makes us complete in himself. So I want us to do something now. I want us to stop, and I want us to examine ourselves. So I want us to stop and pray. Would you bow your head and and just close your eyes? Whether you pray or not, whatever, that's up to you. But would you stop and just pause with us and think about what we've just read and what we've seen? True faith works itself out in our lives. True love, experiencing the love of Christ, works itself out as we begin to labor for Him and labor for others. True endurance begins to show itself true in our lives as as we experience the hope of Jesus and as we look forward to His return. So I want to say this, Christ followers, if you have examined yourself Be grateful that you passed the test. Be grateful and pray for wisdom as you continue in your works of faith, as you continue laboring in love, as you continue to endure through the hope of Jesus Christ. For those of you who failed the test, for those of you who realize you've never experienced true faith, it's never worked itself out, your life has never changed. You never experienced the true love of God because you've never cared for Him in any real way. You've never cared for others in any real way. You don't live hopeful because you don't have hope. For those of you today who have failed the test, I'll tell you this, this is this is probably the greatest moment you'll ever face in failure. Because waiting for you at the at the end of this test is Jesus himself. waiting to redeem you, waiting to forgive you, waiting to make you his child once and for all is Jesus Christ. He bore your sin on the cross. He loves you dearly, dearly. Failing the test is not a time of embarrassment. It's not a time to pull away and push away from God. It's a time to run. It's time to run to him. So run. Run to him. If you failed, recognize we've all failed. The only difference is when we realize we failed, we ran. We ran to the one who succeeded for us. So if you failed the test, run. Maybe you've been a person who's been in the church your whole life and you recognize, dear God, what have I done? I've failed. I've never had true faith. I've never had true love. Run. Run to God. Be forgiven. Be made His. Run. Lord Jesus, my prayer today is to thank you. If we pass the test, thank you. 
for your encouragement. Thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you for giving us love and giving us faith and giving us hope. And thank you for continuing to work in us. Challenge us to continue to lean into that process. To continue, to continue to lean into that work of faith. And lean into that labor of love. And lean into that endurance and steadfastness. And never be overtaken by hopelessness ever again. Thank you for that. But God, today I know somebody's failed that test. I know people in here have failed. God, please... Please, please don't let the enemy win today. Please don't let them continue to fail. Don't let them think that it's too late for them. Please, God, turn them to yourself. Please, God, give them the courage to admit their failure and to come to you. As we all have done, give them that courage to say to you, I don't want to live this way anymore. Forgive me. Make me your child. Give them that courage. Sky, we thank you for hearing us today. We thank you for helping us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.